There is no, of course, biblical command to celebrate Father's Day. And so we want to be careful about pressing that upon anyone. But there certainly are biblical commands to honor fathers and fatherhood. And um, there are many admonitions to fathers in the Scriptures. And it's not necessarily inappropriate for us to take a day to uh, think about that in a special way. So I'm going to have you turn to Psalm 78, if you would. Psalm 78. It's amazing how multi-generational the Psalms are. This is a collection, right? It's not like um, Ephesians. Ephesians, we know, was written by whom? Paul. It was written at a particular time, in a particular place, in particular circumstances, to a particular people, um, or groups of people. But um, Psalms is more of a collection. It's almost like a Bible within a Bible. It's a collection of of hymns and prayers and psalm songs that um, cover centuries, really. I mean, you have it going over a period of at least 400 years, right? You've got some that come down as a tradition from Moses um, from, what, 1400-ish B.C., we might say, and then all the way up to the time of David, for sure, and that's around a thousand, so you've got hundreds of years of people writing these prayers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, of course, many of them coming from David, and uh, but but and these are collected and brought together in a kind of a a kind of inspired hymnal. You know, we have our little hymnal here. It's certainly not inspired, although we hope that most of it is based on the inspired Word of God. But here are some inspired hymns, and this is a hymn of transgenerational praise. And much of it is praise to God for His seminal work of deliverance for His people, which of course, if you're an Old Testament Israelite, you look back at God's great deliverance as the exodus from Egypt. And so this psalm Harkens back to the Exodus, of course, many of the Psalms do. And the Exodus in Egypt, of course, was a prefiguring of our deliverance from the realm of sin and death and all that that entails, and a deliverance out of that into the promised land of salvation and Christ and rest and peace with God and the enjoyment of the eternal presence of God right in our midst, literally for all of the rest of time. And so this is a um, huge theme as it's unfolded throughout the Psalms or it's reflected on throughout the Psalms. This particular Psalm is a recollection of that event And you know, you think about the people who sang this psalm, who heard it sung or chanted or read it in their scriptures. and um, Many of these would be later generations. I mean, three, four, five, six, however many generations after all of these events. And they would learn about God's great deliverance of His people by listening to their fathers and their grandfathers 
and their great-grandfathers sing and chant and tell these stories of God's great and mighty works. Oh, it was told of old how God came and humbled proud Pharaoh and shook his mighty hand and made bare his mighty arm for us. And we saw his great works. And they would tell these things to their kids, right? And then their kids would tell them to their kids and their kids would tell them to their kids. And so it passed on this great heritage of salvation that God had manifested for His people. In a way, it's sort of like, in a way, our hymn book, which is a collection, an uninspired collection, but nevertheless a collection of the testimonies of salvation and the mighty works of God that come to us from across the ages. That's one of the reasons that I do I do love to sing um, hymns. I mean, I love modern uh, songs and, and things that are written today. I think we have a lot of good things being written, but I'm so thankful that as we sing these hymns, we are connected with the work of God throughout all of the generations. And people have been writing hymns about the work of God, well, from the very beginning, haven't they? Starting with, as I said, Moses, and David, and you go on into the New Testament and um, Paul. what Paul writes in, you remember his blessing of God in Ephesians 1 has almost a hymn-like quality. In fact, there have been hymns that are written that are based on it. Um, the book of Revelation talks about a new song being sung by the people of God. Uh, there's an early church writing called the, Did the Didache, which means the teaching, um, the teaching of the church. Um, and it comes from within just less than a century, probably, of the time of Christ himself. And in there are included some hymn-like passages that became hymns of the church uh, later, uh, later on. Um, we sing, Be Thou My Vision, which comes from the 6th century A.D. Do you know how old that song was? Um, Jesus Christ is risen today from the 1300s. A host of uh, songs from uh, the Reformation, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and, and of course the time of the Whitfields and, uh, Whitfield and the Wesleys. Um, there are many hymns that we, we love from the Wesleys and some from the 19th and 20th centuries and then out, even up into modern hymns and worship songs that we sing. And all of this reminds us that we're connected, right, with a, a great long um, work of God over the course of time. How is God's salvation worked out? God's salvation is worked out individually in our lives as we experience it in our, in our own personal histories. But His work is also unfolded throughout the entirety of salvation history, which is, of course, centered on the Lord Jesus Christ and will culminate with His return. And we fit into that bigger story. And singing these hymns and reading these psalms reminds us of that, that we're a part of that. And on Father's Day, it's so appropriate that we think back on this heritage that we have as the people of God and the blessing that we have to uh, stand in that stream so this hymn, that is Psalm 78, um, was passed down from fathers to children, from one generation to another. And we're going to read it.
together this morning. They're just the first eight verses. We won't read the entire psalm. Obviously, it's a very long psalm, and uh, it would be great to go back and read it later. It's a psalm of warning, as well as a song of rejoicing. But we'll read the first few verses. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that have been heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell them, tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So here we have Psalm 78, a hymn, a heritage, passed down from one generation to another, fathers teaching their children of the ways and the works of God. Fathers are tremendously important in the outworking of God's plan in this world. And yet... uh, uh, it's just, it really is sad um, at the movement of our culture away from a belief in the necessity of fatherhood, the importance of dads. The last United States um, census they did back in 2010, I guess, they're getting ready to do another one. The last one, they said that there were 24 million children in the United States living apart from their biological fathers. That's about one in every three kids not living with dad. In 1960, that was only 11% of the children that were living in father-absent homes. So it, this, is, this is the world we live in. It's become a trend. And for Christians, it's important that we celebrate the uh, role of fathers and the calling that we have as as fathers. Uh, We all work hard to try to make life better for our kids. I think most of us would like to believe or hope that our children will have a better time of it than we did. We don't necessarily want to make it easier. We might in some ways, depending on our situations, but but we want life to be better for them. We want to leave them something that will that will help them. And some people save up all their lives to leave their kids an inheritance, to leave them money. But what the Lord is really after here is that we as fathers leave to our children a spiritual inheritance, a, um, a legacy of testimony about the might of the works of God, about His great grace that He shows to His people. 
If we left that to our children, our children would be rich indeed, whether we left them a penny or not. Their souls would be happier now and for eternity if they grasped on to that legacy of faith than if we left them a million dollars. And so that's what this psalm is about, about passing on, about telling to the next generation, to the next generation, always looking ahead to the next generation, even to the third and the fourth generation that they may also come to know the grace of God. We can learn something about that spiritual heritage that we are to leave our children, our grandchildren, from almost every verse in this text here this morning. And I want to highlight each one for you, um, beginning with verse number 1. If you'll take a look at that again, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Give me your Ears, he says, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. And one of the things that we learn is that passing on a spiritual heritage requires engaging our children verbally. Of course, it's possible for a dad to be physically present in the home, but be verbally, emotionally, socially very distant from his children spiritually, to have a big gulf between himself and his children where whatever is true may be true for him in his relationship with God never gets communicated in any kind of earnest way to his kids. And brothers, brothers, let's let it not be that way for us. But let us speak to our children and engage with them about the glories and the greatness of God and the wonders of His love for us in Christ, the might of His salvation that He has worked for us. It is possible for us to work all day, and I know the demands on you men are great. Uh, I hear your testimonies. I know the pressures that you face. And everybody expects everything from you at work and there are demands and there are quotas and there are expectations and there are deadlines and there is uh, there's just so much pressure and it's tempting to think about work all the time. And there are times when we're on our way home and the last thing that we want to do is think about doing anything besides eating a nice meal, sitting down on the couch and turning on ESPN or something. I don't know. But um, brothers... The Lord has called us, all of us, the Lord has called us to engage, to be verbally engaged with our children about the wonders and the glories of God. I never get tired of thinking about it, and I know I've said it many times, but I will never forget the words that a seasoned father in our church years ago gave me as a young man, I don't know, I don't even know if I had children at that time, but he said, you know, and he was a man who was very busy with much pressure at work, but he said, when I come home, I, I intentionally set my mind on the fact that my work is not done. I'm not coming home to just have me time. I'm coming home to a new calling, a new aspect of my calling. These children, this wife that God has given me, that is my new calling. And I'm not, you know, I'm coming home to be intentional about that. And that has always stuck with me. And I hope and I pray that you and I can be as intentional with our children 
with the calling that God has given to us to communicate these wonders of God to our children, to live out the gospel before them. Proverbs 23, 26, the writer says, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. What our children need is to hear and to see the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ before them, put before them, spoken of not just as dad sitting down to tell our kids, hey, it's time to go to church, but speaking to our children in earnest as if we really believe what we're saying to them. That's what they need to hear. Our children don't need, they don't need necessarily more time with their peers. I'm not saying that spending time with friends is all evil. The Bible does say that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and whoever walks with wise men will become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. I'm saying what our children need more than they need friends, more than they need to fit in, what our children need is to hear from us and to see our lives, to see the truth of God's Word and to hear the truth of God's Word communicated. What your daughter's men need more than hanging out with her girlfriends at the mall is to hear you speak to her of the wonders of salvation. All her girlfriends are consumed with thoughts of this boy or that boy and who's going to ask me to the dance and how cute all the rock stars are and what they wear and how they look and if some guy is going to notice me at the mall this weekend. And that's the world that our kids live in. What our children need is to hear of something beyond all of that. To be in the presence of people who see things that are invisible to the world. To see reality. And for the children to begin to see a little bit themselves. What our boys need for dads who come and engage their sons and to speak to them the truths of God's Word, to engage them verbally about all of the things that they're facing in life, the wonders of the Lord, how to think rightly about all that they see. Our children need us. This is God's ordained plan. You know, the Lord has given such great blessings to humanity. He's given the good of government. Now, you might question that, depending on what kind of government you're living under, uh, what time of the world you live in. But in general, the Bible sees government, human government as a good to bring about God's law, which is implanted even in our hearts, to bring that to bear upon society. There is the good of the church, which preaches the high and glorious truths of the gospel to the assembled people of God, and then through sending out and scattering the church into the world, proclaims the gospel around the world. But the Lord has also ordained that His 
word be spread by means of the family. And in some ways, the family is kind of, it's kind of um, at the heart of it all, right? I mean, in a, in a way, churches uh, are made up of, of many families who come together. Societies and communities and countries are as strong as the, as the families and the values that those families have. Families are really, in one sense, at, at, at the heart of uh, what God is doing. And uh, the psalm here just starts with this. Son, daughter, children, grandchildren, listen to me. Hear what I have to say. And I want to say that word to the kids here, here, to the young people. Listen, you know, your dad may seem like he doesn't always, you know, he's not always the wisest guy. He, you may see inconsistencies in his life. You may think he's a little bit out of touch with the things that are going on in the world today. And, and some of that may be true. Maybe he, you know, doesn't dress as cool as he should, right? Or, you know, he doesn't know all of the, you know, the newest things that are going on. But your fathers have, if they speak to you the word of God, if they speak to you the word of God, they are giving you a timeless wisdom that is not their own. And it will be to your eternal good to heed it. To honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, you may live in the land that the Lord has prepared for us. So fathers, engage our children verbally. Children, listen and hear. Look at verse 3. Here's a second thing. Verse number 3. He says, I'm going to skip verse 2 for now. We'll come back to that. I know, jumped over that. But verse 3, he's speaking about things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. In other words, secondly, providing a spiritual inheritance is a passing on of inherited wisdom ourselves. It's been said that we are all like dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants. I said it earlier, everybody's standing on someone else's shoulders. It's amazing. I've, I've come to believe this is more true than we probably realize. We all think that, that we're making up our own minds and we are coming to everything totally objectively and we, we, we can get the world figured out on our own. Thank you very much. Every one of us lives within a cultural milieu, a, a certain tradition that we have inherited and don't even realize it. And of course, the, the culture of the world, I mean, it has its own way of thinking and that sometimes permeates our thinking. But by the grace of God, so can it be true uh, in the house of God that there is a, a tradition. You know, the, the reformers were not against tradition. Did you know that? They were not against tradition in the church. They were not against the, um, the, the writings of the fathers, the church fathers. They were not against these things. What they were after is that everything has to be rooted on the very Word of God. They were very aware that no fathers are perfect, that everybody can, anyone can slowly drift from the absolute unchanging Word of God. And they said, that's got to be our touchstone. But they were thankful for the heritage that had come their way, and we ought to be as well. We could all learn from our spiritual forefathers, the fathers of the Christian 
heritage. I listened a while back to a series of lectures um, from Reformed Theological Seminary online. You can listen to their stuff um, for free. And they had a series of lectures on church history, which was just fascinating to me. It grew my respect for the saints of the ages to a great degree. And these men, the early leaders in Christianity were on the cutting edge. I mean, these guys were defending core Christian doctrines in a day that when those things were being attacked. I mean, things like the very nature of the Trinitarian God and the the nature of Jesus and who Jesus is. I mean, these guys were fighting over those things, right? These were were tremendously important times and gifted men. and, and, And for some of them, they're... Their willingness to dig into the Word of God and to argue for truth cost them. It cost them dearly, in fact. Athanasius, who I mentioned earlier, who articulated and defended the deity of Christ against the Arian heresy, was exiled from his home and his church five different times over the period of 45 years. These men stood for truth And because of that, because of their willingness to go back to the Scriptures and hammer things out and see what God said and stand for what God said, we we are blessed. We take it for granted when we say we believe in one God in three persons. We believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, right? We say these things as if they're a matter of course. We stand on the shoulders of these people who, who dug into the Scriptures. And we, of course, we continue to go back to the Scriptures to see these things and to support these things and to defend these things. But we are blessed indeed to stand on the shoulders of giants. We sing about mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one. I would encourage you to spend time with those whose rest is already one. Spend time with dead Christians. How about that? I don't mean go down to the cemetery. I mean open a book. Read what godly men of the past have written. Of course, we are blessed to have preachers living today, teachers of the Scripture that help us. We have so much to gain from dead friends. Reading the Puritans, for example, has been such a blessing In my life, these men in the 17th century, England primarily, who wrote with such doctrinal precision for the most part, and such practical and pastoral warmth for the most part, have often encouraged my soul. And if you read them in a modernized version, you might do your soul well. Or to use the hit treasury of hymnology, the hymns that I was talking about that come from all of the different eras of, of church history. This is a way we commune with older saints already passed before us of another generation, people who've come before you. And of course with older saints of this generation. Doesn't the Bible tell us older godly women are to teach young wives how to be godly women, mothers? Right? 
there are, there's a lot we can learn. It's, there's no, uh, there's no um, benefit just to being old, but if you're old and godly, if you've walked with Jesus all that time, if you've grown all that time. I do feel like some Christians maybe are Christians, but they kind of got to a place where they just sort of plateaued and, and you wonder if they ever grew very much. But I mean, you find, you find one of those people, one of those men that you know, or those women that you know, who have grown in the Lord through all those years, slowly and surely, and you learn from them. You learn from those who've walked before. That's where we all are. These people were passing down to their children what they had learned from their fathers and their mothers. Providing a spiritual inheritance is a passing on of inherited wisdom. And thirdly, verse number four, you see verse four? We will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has, what? That He has done. Number four is this, or number three rather. Passing on a spiritual heritage means telling the next generation of God's great works. Telling them what God has done. In other words, passing on a heritage of faith is not just about telling the next generation what to do. It's about telling them what God has done. The imperatives flow out of the indicatives. If you want to be grammarly about it, I don't know if that's a word, but that's all right. God has done things, and this is what we tell to our children. Don't just you know, we all tell our children, do this and don't do that. Probably the very first thing you said to them is, well, maybe not the first thing. I'm sure it wasn't the first thing. But one of the very first things you kept telling them was, no, 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 <laughs> right? No, 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 no. <laughs> Sometimes you still feel like you say that a lot. No. Or do that. Did I, didn't I tell you to do that? Did you do what I told you? Did you get your to-do list done? Children, you get all your stuff done? Did you do everything you were supposed to do? We tell our children, do this, don't do that. And that's right. We have to do that. But more than that, what this psalm is, is picturing is we're telling our children about the great things God has done. God has done. That's, that's the gospel that has the power to not just constrain us outwardly, to, be, to transform us inwardly, so that we do the things that we ought to do and don't do the things that we ought not to do. The wonders of the fact that Jesus Christ obeyed the Father perfectly in all things and laid down His life even for His enemies like you, so that if you would humble yourself and put your faith and trust in Him, you might be saved, you might be part of His kingdom, delivered from His wrath and brought into His favor. You could be a child of God Christ has done this to bring you into favor with God. Put your faith and trust in Christ. That's the kind of things that these people were saying. Oh yeah, they were saying it in terms of typology. They said, let me tell you how God delivered us from Egypt. We were slaves. You know what? We say the same thing to our children, don't we? We say, listen, we were slaves to our sin. We were in bondage to our own pride, our self-sufficiency, our, our laziness, our lying, 
our lust, our envy, our bitterness, our anger, our drunkenness, our taking of God's name in vain. We just, we, that's the way we lived. We were just caught up in that. But God, in His great mercy, He reached down into our lives and He brought us out of Egypt. And He set our feet on the path and now we're headed to the promised land. And kids, every day we find, you know what we found? Let me tell you about how God provided manna for us in the wilderness. Oh, it was great. You should have seen it. Right? This is what these people did. Let me tell you about how, how Moses struck that rock and water just right in the middle of the desert. We were all there. And every all our animals got, I mean, they all took drinks. And we, oh, we had a big part. People were throwing water up in the air. We were running and dancing in it. It was wonderful. They would tell their, and you tell your children those kind of stories. How God was merciful, how God was gracious, how He provided, how He showed Himself kind in spite of your failures, how you humbled yourself before Him and you found Him to be merciful again and again and again and again. And you just can't believe how lucky you are, how blessed you are. Those are the kind of things that we tell our children, the glorious deeds of God, His wondrous works. Facts are necessary. Doctrine is important. Instruction is critical. But stories, the stories of God are powerful. God's greatness on display through His mighty acts and deeds. The works of Christ. Tell them about His power to heal. Tell them about His forgiveness of sin. And not only tell them yourself, but point them to the stories of other Christians who've walked the path before you and have learned the amazing works of God for themselves. One of my uh, you know, Christian biographies are a good way to do this. Some of you probably have some good ones. Um, you could probably ask some other people Hey, what good Christian biography really encouraged you? Um, the biography of John Payton, a missionary. Uh, our Payton's named after. That was one. I'll share a little bit about that in a minute. For me, um, another biography, though, uh, it's actually more of the journals of Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish preacher in the 1800s. was really moving to me. And one of the sweetest... Um, was Bunyan's testimony, grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Here's a man who struggled with a sense of assurance of his relationship with God, and he really struggled. I mean, way more than probably anybody I've ever met. But in the end was enabled to see a righteousness outside of himself, Jesus Christ at God's own right hand. There, he said, is my righteousness. And his heart was warmed. Right? And he has to go on and continue to learn that lesson, that gospel, the good news. Reading things like this. These are real people who've lived before us and and seeing they saw the mighty works of God in their lives and reading them, we also pass on those stories of God's greatness to ourselves and to our children, to our grandchildren. And of course, 
Passing on the stories of God's greatness also often means being honest about our own failures. And you know, I don't know if you've ever tried to tell your children your testimony, right? To tell them, to to put into words for your children, and I, I mean, I certainly hope you've done this, but to put into words for your children how God brought you to Himself through Jesus Christ. And part of that means sharing your own failures too. Because few, if any, people have ever come to a place of salvation without a real awareness of their own their own failures. And a, and a, and a humility about that that makes them willing to admit it. And that's what this psalm does. It doesn't hold back. In fact, if you look at verse 8 and you keep going... The rest of it gets real depressing real quick (laughs) because he talks about how the generations before them in many ways failed to believe the promises of God. And so sometimes we share um, with our children not only the greatness of God's works, but the greatness of God's works in spite of our own failures again and again that the Lord is merciful. Part of passing on a godly heritage is sharing the stories of God in your own real life. And that's not to say that formal teaching and doctrine is not important, because it is. In fact, we see that in the next one. Look at verse 5. We see that the passing on of a spiritual um, heritage comes through teaching the law of God. Verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. So what are they to do? They're not only to tell their children about the great works of God, but they are also to teach their children the law of God, God's commandments. And of course, that's what we saw back in our scripture reading this morning earlier, Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. You shall teach these things to your children. Um, these things that I command you, you shall teach them, and they may talk of them all the time uh, during the day and even into the night. In other words, teaching our kids the Bible is not just a job for the Sunday school. It's a job for dad. It's a job for mom. It's a job for one generation to do for the next. It'd be better for us... Well, I'll just say this. Parents should not rely on the Sunday school to train their children in the way of God. It is their responsibility. Your children need to hear you reading to them the Bible. Do you read the Bible to your children? Tell them of the wonders of God. And none of us is perfect, and I'm not here to to condemn you, but to encourage you. Maybe you have failed. Maybe you haven't really gotten in the habit of reading the Bible with your family. Maybe you used to be in the habit, but you kind of got out of it, which is easy to do, right? Life gets busy. Brothers, I'm just saying, take up the Word again. Gather your family around. Say, kids, I'm sorry, we get busy sometimes. But as often as we can, I want us to hear the Word of God together. 
well, my kids can read the Bible themselves. You know, they're not little anymore. Well, of course they can. Yeah, and they ought to. But to hear dad open up the word of God and share God's words to his children is just an just a eminently biblical thing to have happen. If your children are younger, I'd encourage you to get a Bible storybook, right? Um, we use with our kids the Jesus Storybook Bible. Most of you know about that, right? Have you ever heard of that? Anybody heard of that? Raise your hand. The Jesus Storybook Bible. Sally Lloyd-Jones, I think. Or um, there's one called The Greatest Story, Kevin D. Young. Uh, How the Snake Crusher crushes the head of the snake. I don't know what the subtitle is, something along that line. Great way to tell the stories of the Bible. There's one that Jen used with Peyton last year called, just called Theology, not Theology, but Theology by Marty Machowski. And uh, you know, our, our kids, even, even at a young age, they can, they can hear the Word of God on their level. They can be engaged with the Scriptures, use the catechisms. I know some of you all have used the Children's Catechism, the Baptist Children's Catechism, or uh, Catechism for Young Children, the one based on the Westminster, um, those are great teaching uh, tools. Read the Bible with your children. Even when they were young, I remember reading the Bible with our kids when they were really small and they, were, they would ask questions that seemed to have like nothing to do with the Bible or at least nothing to do with the passage we were reading. You know, we were reading how, I don't know, I don't know what it was, but but they would always end up in pretty good conversations and and you know, trying to explain the Trinity to your six-year-old son is a lot of fun, right? Um, it's good for us. You know, there are, it's, sometimes it seems intimidating to some, some men, and we say, well, what if I come to a passage? I don't know what it means. You know what? So I'm the pastor, and I come to passages, and my kid asks me, and I say, I'm not sure what it means. That's okay. I just I need to do my best to go back and try to figure it out. So grab your ESV study Bible or some you know, commentary or something. Open it up ahead of time, read the little notes, and then just do your best. And you're going to grow along with them. We all grow together, but open it up and read the Word of God. If you have little children, start in a, start in a gospel or start with a narrative. As they get older, you can go into the epistles and things like that. And then when you're really, really old, you can read them the book of Revelation and explain that to them. Okay? Um, we haven't gotten to the Revelation yet, have we, kids? All right. That's, that's kind of, we haven't got to it in church either, have we? So I guess now I'm on the spot. Read your kids the Word of God. Um, I, Richard Baxter was such a challenge to me in thinking about this. And, and um, I think there probably is some of his theology that's a little suspect, but he was certainly a, a diligent minister of the Word of God. And um, he wrote this to pastors who uh, were over parishes about their um, responsibility to get the fathers of the homes involved in teaching their kids. He says, What are we like to do ourselves in the reforming of a congregation if all the work be cast on us alone? And the fathers of families neglect that necessary duty of their own by which they are bound to help us. If any good be begun by the ministry in any soul, a careless, prayerless, worldly family is like to stifle it or very much hinder it. Whereas if you could, 
but get the fathers of families to do their duty and to take up the work where you left it and to help it on with the, what abundance of good might be done. I beseech you, therefore, if you desire the reformation and welfare of your people, do all you can to promote family religion or family devotion. And God's did an amazing work in the little town where Baxter ministered. Um, he began there and he said he would go down streets and there would be whole streets where nobody on the street um, worshipped God privately in their homes. I mean, they might go to church just because, you know, they should go to church. Many of them didn't. But um, he says as he, by the time he ministered there for 19 years, he said he would walk down streets on a Lord's Day morning and he says as you walk down the street you could hear psalms being sung in all of the little cottages up and down the street. And God had done a great work, in part, not because Baxter was such a great minister, but because God raised up dads in their homes to take the Word of God, to teach the Word of God, to gather their family around, to sing the praises of God, and to worship Him together. Pressing on to verse 6 then, we see this, that passing on a spiritual heritage often bears fruit for generations to come. Not just this immediate generation, but the generations to come. Look at verse 6. Now see how many generations are in verse 6. Especially if you take verse 5 and 6 together. Verse 6, that the generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their generation... So here's one generation saying, we've learned from our fathers, and we're teaching our, the next generation, the one not yet born, and so that they can turn around and teach their generation. How many generations is that? All right, that's, you know, that's three or four generations anyway. Right, so this is, what, what we're seeing here is this kind of, um, the kind of impact that this, um, this communication of the Word of God can have across the generations, even to the third and the fourth generation. In fact, um, God's mercies are often transgenerational. I've told you how I always remember going to my grandparents and three wonderful things. One, all the donuts you can eat at Dunkin' Donuts. Woohoo! That was like the best. My parents never went out to eat, hardly. Not when I was a kid. Now, by the time I left, you know, it started getting down to one kid. Then they went out all the time. But when I was a kid, because I was first born, we never went out. So going to Dunkin' Donuts and eating all the Dunkin' Donuts you could eat and chocolate milk, that was great. I always remembered that. Two, walk down to the Walgreens and every week that you went to Grandpa's house, you, you got a Matchbox car, a brand new Matchbox car. Greatest thing. And the third thing, every morning came home, sat down around the kitchen table, or maybe every night, I, that part's a little fuzzy, but sitting around, I still remember the exact place on the kitchen table where I sat, Grandpa sat, Grandma sat, and they'd open up the Bible, and each one take turns reading the Bible. Each one takes turns praying. You know? And these things have a way of just going on and on and on throughout. So, you know, you're passing on a heritage, not just to your kids, but to your grandkids, to your great-grandkids that resounds through the ages. And this is what God, God intends. And then we see this in verse number 7, that the goal of this passing on of a spiritual heritage, and verse 7 is this. Take a look at the verse. So that... They would set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. In other words, this, the goal of passing on a spiritual heritage is faith, 
hope in God and obedience. That our children would set their hope in God, that they would find their joy in God, that they would have all of their expectations wrapped up in Him. And because of that, that they would obey Him. And obedience always grows out of what you set your hope in. What you set your hope in will determine how you, how you act, what you choose. Our goal, more than anything else, is not just to have good kids. Kids who don't embarrass us when we go out to eat. Although that's not bad too, right? Kids who know how to behave. Kids who say please and thank you. But children who set their hope in God. Because I tell you, if your hope is in God, you will never be disappointed. Amen? You'll be disappointed if you set your hope in anybody else on this earth. You will inevitably be disappointed. But if they set their hope on God, they will never be ashamed. And ultimately, that kind of relationship with God only comes through the gospel, comes through Christ. And that's where we come now, back to verse 2 in closing. Look at verse 2. You remember this verse. This verse ought to look very familiar. Why? Because we've seen it in Matthew. Yeah. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Matthew quotes that in what chapter? 13. And he says that was talking about Jesus. Right. So who is this dispenser of wisdom across the generations? Well, it's every family. It's every dad as he passes. But ultimately... All of that is, comes from the Lord Jesus Himself. It's Jesus who ultimately reveals what is hidden. It's Jesus who alone can bring our children to God. He speaks through us. That's the point here. Who, in other words, who's talking in verse 2? Is it the dad or is it Jesus? Answer is yes. It's dad talking, but it's Jesus speaking through Him. It's the, you know, we look to the one as a reflection of the one who's greater. And if we don't hear the one who's greater, then, then we miss it all. We need to hear Jesus. Our children need to hear Jesus. They need to be pointed to Jesus Christ. Listen, every one of you in here today needs to have your heart focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can bring you to God. He alone can cause you to have a relationship with God as your Father. In all of our interaction with our children, we should point them to him, I mean then that the primary concern in all of our teaching should be the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not trying to kid, simply to get our kids to pray a prayer, but to see, uh, to help them to see their own sinfulness and the glories of the righteousness of the Son of God. May God give us families and fathers who will pass on a heritage of faith to the generations to come. I talked about John Payton a minute ago, um, biography of John Payton, who was a missionary to some islands out in the Pacific, the, what's what were called the New Hebrides back then. Now it's called Vanuatu. And uh, back then it was inhabited by um, literally cannibals. They actually ate people um, and they murdered people who had gone there from the outside. They were very, very isolated peoples. Um, such that you can hardly, you, you'd have a hard, much harder time fighting in the world today even. But, but there they were very isolated and, and he felt burdened to go to those people. But 
But this didn't come out of the blue. Peyton was the son of a man who, James Peyton, who was like a patriarch, uh, a man who taught his children, who modeled the gospel before his children. And, and, and some of his children followed the Lord. Some of them became missionaries. In fact, some of them to the New Hebrides, along with Peyton, Peyton's children. Uh, some of them were missionaries. Even his grandchildren, one of his granddaughters and, and her husband were missionaries in China for over 40 years. I mean, third and fourth generation here. This is what we're talking about. And Peyton said at one point, John, the son, uh, he said, if everything else about my upbringing were wiped out of my memory, he said, one thing I'll always remember, and that is standing outside the door of a little room that my dad had where he went in to pray. He called it his closet, his prayer closet, you know, after the scripture. Go into your closet and pray. He said he would hear his dad in there praying for souls to be saved. And he said he would, that had a way of melting his heart and causing him to want to have a relationship with that same God. And he, these were the words he said he would always remember. He said, uh, my dad walked with God. Why may not I? That's what I want to do. I want the relationship with God that I saw real and living for this man. May that be said for our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren by the mercies of God. Fatherhood is a wonderful thing. It's a holy calling. Take it up and uh, make good use of that in the mercies of God. Father, we pray that you would work throughout the generations. We thank you for those who've gone before us. We pray that you'd work in the generations to come. So to glorify your name, in Jesus' name we pray.